It's a curious question. Can an economy do without numbers? We discuss the role of numbers in a participatory economy or in any economy in this episode of Pep Talk. Could you please tell us um, what you see as the alternative? Self-management, democratic control of communities or workplaces, federal arrangements. Participatory democratic planning. Jobs down a mix of empowered your nested linked to one Everyone gets to participate in a primary council. Welcome to Pet Talk, the podcast where we discuss the democratic alternative to capitalism known as a participatory economy. Hello and welcome to Pep Talk, the participatory economy podcast, the podcast where we discuss the democratic alternative to capitalism known as a participatory economy. I'm your host, Mitchell Strapinchik from Chicago. Uh, today, I am joined by three contributors from across the world. Uh, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts in the United States is Robin Hanel. He is the author of many books, including his most recent book, A Participatory Economy. He's the co founder of the model of a participatory economy, and he's joining us for this podcast episode. Robin, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. We're also joined from Stockholm, Sweden by Anders Sandström. Uh, Anders is an economist and author. His uh, most recent book is called Anarchist Accounting, Accounting Principles for a Democratic Economy, published by Routledge. Um, Anders, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we are also joined in Helsinki, Finland, with Antti Jaihuainen. Uh, Antti is a longtime uh, writer, teacher, political activist, and advocate of, of a participatory economy. Um, Antti, welcome as well. Happy to be here. We are going to talk about a topic that could be very vague and very broad, but I'm going to see what we can do in the maybe 30 or 35 minutes that we can talk here. Um, and particularly since we have an economist and an accountant on here, it seems appropriate. It's the role of numbers within an alternative economy, a socialist economy, a participatory economy, what have you. Um, now, you would think that within an economy, numbers are all across an economy. You have money, you have credit, you have debits, you have prices, you have quantities. Numbers are all over the place. Um, and you would think that after after the revolution and we have a new economy, that that would still be the case. Um, uh, are, would that be the case? And let's just start with the discussion with Robin. Yeah, there's a um, there's a famous quote from Oscar Wilde, which which sort of summarizes a lot of anti-capitalist attitude, which is, well, in cap capitalism knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And I think it adequately it I think it very nicely addresses a very sort of deep feeling and sentiment that many anti-capitalists have um, that, you know, putting price tags on things, you know, is part of what's undesirable, unattractive, what they don't like about capitalism. And then they draw what I am going to argue is the naive conclusion that in a desirable economy, we somehow don't have to do this, that this is not something that's going to be necessary and that we're going to need to do. Um, I also think that if you if you actually just could gather in one place um, all the people who are broadly speaking and you know fighting to to for a system that's different from capitalism, um, 
on average, we have a larger than proportionate amount of number phobes in there mm. who don't like the whole subject of numbers and math anyway. Um, so I think that's part of, you know, what we want to talk about today. Um, Anders, same question to you. Uh, numbers within a desirable economy. Uh, do you expect them? You've written an entire book about it. What do you think? Yes, we we definitely need numbers in a in a in a democratic economy future democratic economy we there you know we, we we want to have different values and we want to have different people making decisions you know people that are affected by by the decisions but they all will need numbers and they all will need information to make these decisions and uh, and you know numbers are just information that you know, if they are done in a in a in a in a good way, that provides a basis for making decisions. So definitely, we need numbers. Um, Antti, did you want to enter the fray on this? Yeah, I, I'm of the same school of thought here. Um, the thing is, like you said that, uh, or I, I said, I'm glad to be here, happy to be here. I think, and I like to come back to what Robin said in the start. I think that. Thing that people some people feel is is bad is that you would have to quantify how happy is Antti to be here <laughs> tell me the number um and and that's like uh that's sort of what it also i think it's sometimes a discussion on sort of political science and philosophy and religion and economics and and so on mixes up because in real world they are all mixed up uh but on the other hand, we need sort of the hard lines, and I we sort of need certain decisions in order for the water to run down the pipe, or to have electricity from from the uh, power plant and so on, um, and that all of that needs needs numbers, and I think economy as well needs numbers. But for this discussion, I think one episode won't be enough for this. Uh, but it's important to recognize that there are a lot of areas in life and in society where we don't need numbers and we shouldn't have numbers but there it's very important to recognize there are areas where we do need them right now that let's get into regarding the this among activists of certain persuasions or various political philosophies among um critics of capitalism or of dominant economies um they would be fearful of numbers um, we would probably want to ask them why that would be the case, but in their experience, um, for folks here, um, why do we think that people are afraid of numbers? Do they think that is just that capitalism is bad and numbers are part of capitalism, therefore they think that numbers are bad, or is it more subtle than that? Uh, Robin, what, what your, what's your take here? I do think that's part of it. Um... I think there's also a skepticism. What I'm going to argue is that for many, 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 many economic decisions we have to make, that it's really almost impossible to make an informed decision unless you have some reasonable estimate of, well, what are the benefits to society of going ahead and doing something? And what are the costs to society of going ahead and doing something? And that immediately means that you somehow have to quantify, you know, 
And there are all sorts of different ways in which doing something costs society. Um, it could cost society in the form of hours of work. Um, hours of work of, well, what kind of work? Some hours of work are are more painful or more burdensome than other hours of work. Um, but it's not just hours of work. When we when we do something, when we produce something, we also are going to use natural resources from the economy. And if we use them to do one thing, they can't be used to do something else. So there are also costs, environmental costs associated with doing things. So there's all sorts of different categories. Um, also, people value things differently. I mean, if you ask me, well, how much do you value a particular good? And you ask somebody else, you're going to get different answers. Hmm. So some people's reaction to that is, well, there is no right answer or wrong answer. Um, on the other hand, we're going to argue that even though people feel differently about how valuable something is, that doesn't mean it's impossible not to come up with an estimate of the social benefit of the benefit to society of having more of something or having or or the, or the loss of having less than something so i just think those there there are good reasons to be concerned with how we're quantifying but the bottom line is how could anybody make a sensible decision you know about whether they think it's a good idea to do something unless they had some sort of estimate of, well, if we do this, how much is it going to cost society as compared to how much is it going to benefit society? Um, because we don't want to do things that cost society more than they benefit society. So that kind of information, it seems to me, is absolutely necessary. Um, there are reasons that people are suspicious of doing that. Um, but I don't think those reasons stand up um, when under careful examination. Um, Anders, the same question to you. Why do you think that some critics of capitalism are afraid of numbers? Yes, uh, this this is interesting. I think there are many different reasons, but one one reason that I find uh, interesting is that I, you know, I think people, some people, have concerns about economic models. Hmm. Uh, because you know economic models try to capture very complex and complicated economic transactions and economic relations in equations right and in in order to do so they they need to use a lot of abstractions and a lot of assumptions to the point where some people feel that they these models become detached from reality disconnected from reality they don't really they don't really you know capture the the reality and you know from there from that you know from that feeling they say you know to hell with all numbers mm. and i think that is a wrong you know it's a wrong uh, you know that you know i i can relate to that concern i i myself as an uh, as an accountant i can really relate to that concern regarding too much abstraction in an econ economic uh, 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 model, definitely. But but my way to deal with that is to dig into even more numbers and to try to, you know, figure out, you know, figure out a, a, a bridge to, to 
to the reality from the economic model. And I, we might get into that discussion later, but you know, that's how I deal with that. But other people just get so disillusioned with, with that, with those abstractions that they, that they don't want to go into numbers at all. I, I think that is, a, I think that could be an explanation for, for some people turning away from numbers. But and and I and I can sort of relate to that feeling, but I, d I definitely cannot relate to the the way they sort of deal with with that um, uh, with those concerns. I also I like to add that uh, one of the issues there I think is that the critics are right in saying that numbers have power. I think numbers definitely have power, and power basically means that we have to make decisions. You know, when, when we are quantifying stuff, it means we actually have to make decisions how much different things are valued, what, what will happen, you know, really when we use those numbers. And I think this is a um, distressing thought to a lot of people. They don't want to sort of uh, apply that power and hope that it could be avoided somehow. Uh, it's the same thing that I think Robin writes very well in... in uh, Actually, a lot of his books about, you know, asking who gets to say no. And numbers are very elemental to that, that we have to make those decisions. We can't always, you know, just have everyone agree on everything. Instead, we have to make decisions. Uh, and numbers make that possible. Numbers help with that. But it's also the power and with numbers that that is. And I think that's uh, that discussion is is discomforting sometimes given that power and i actually i myself see this especially with the work i've done with robin regarding um building computer code to um, which used a lot of numbers um in working out computerized models regarding a participatory economy i can understand the point that auntie raises there is a whole lot of power there and it can be very intimidating for people especially if they don't have a whole lot of experience or background in that um and that's kind of i think part of the challenge involved with building for a, a better economy that these are tools and they can be very powerful and actually can be wielded in or should be in a helpful way. Um, and that kind of brings me to the point, and Anders, I'd like you to comment on this, that it would seem like that, uh, the, especially the book that you've written about anarchist accounting, especially where <laughs> many people would probably regard anarchism and, and accounting as contradictory terms, but yet they can actually be helpful. Could you add comment on this? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, first of all, one of the things, one of the immutable and unchanging truth truths in accounting is that, you know, debit entries and credit entries need to balance, right? Right. That you know, debit and credit has to be equal, and so. So that basically means that whenever some whenever someone is charged with something, someone else needs to be credited for the same amount. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone is credited credited with something, someone else has to be charged with the same amount. And this and this is fairly straightforward. If you look at the the capitalist economy that we have today, this is fairly straightforward because we have everything is owned today. Uh, in, in the economy, at, at least in theory, right? So whenever something, uh, whenever someone is, whenever where someone is charged with someone something, then someone else, another, 
you know another owner a seller or something is is um, uh, credited and so this is fairly sort of simple to understand that here but but what we say now in in this economy or or in a you know an anarchist economy we say that there are certain things you know productive resources will not be owned they will be or they will be owned in common right so so then the question becomes you know when we charge someone for the access for to uh productive resources who is credited you know there's no there's no very immediate counterpart to be credited then right. and who is charged when we use labor because we also say in our economy we also say that you know the the the, the fee that you get charged for getting access to labor is not the same as the compensation that you get as a worker so that's the difference there so all these different you know the um the, all these different questions arise when you change certain institutions right and so i think that uh accounting is helpful to ask the right questions and i that's what i tried to i tried to answer these questions in my book you know who, who is who is the counterpart who is who will be credited when when a worker council is charged for the for the for for uh, getting access to productive resources that's that's one example and then i, I, I do want to get uh, give another example that is even more uh interesting i think and that is price formulation because once again in our in our market economy prices are formed very easily and conveniently but it's formed through negotiations between individual buyers and sellers so it's very easy to form a price in a market economy for for good reasons we say that we don't want markets in in our economy instead prices are formed differently through our uh, uh, planning procedure that we propose participatory planning procedure but then you know people start thinking you know how how can we possibly propose to uh, you know get to prices for this huge amount of products that we have you know so many different versions of goods that exist and so on and this is one of the criticisms that has been especially uh damaging i think maybe to the model but you know th this is this is you know i think it's uh important to take these concerns seriously and try to answer them and actually in that in that context i think accounting can be really helpful in the in the case of pricing it turns out that you know even today and maybe especially today in our economy producers when before they go into their their negotiations they do product costing in order to get you know i mean they know exactly what it costs to produce their different uh, goods and from there on they they enter into the negotiations and they get to a price I am saying, and, I, and this is all, I'm, this is also something I say in my book. I'm saying that, you know, basically the same thing happens uh, in a participatory economy, you know, in the sense that people have, you know, producers have to make product costing. They need to allocate their costs, their production costs, to their different uh, uh, versions of goods that they produce. 
But then, you know, they don't enter into a negotiation between, uh, with anybody. They, they, they can use that information to derive prices for more detailed products from the price that is quoted in the, in the uh, uh, participatory planning procedure. So I, I'm just, I'm, you know, my point here is that I think it's really important to take these concerns seriously and try to answer, answer them and, and, and provide answers for those concerns. And, I, and in that context, I think counting can be really, really helpful. Um, Robin, uh, Anders had spelled out some details kind of augmenting on the model you co-created. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, first of all, as Anders is known for decades, I've admitted to him that, I mean, I'm a professor of economics, and when you teach introduction to economics, usually the second chapter, you know, in the macroeconomics introductory book is about national income accounting. Hmm. And I've always felt like I just don't understand it. <laughs> And so Anders has been teaching me about the logic of accounting and how every, you know, all debits and all credits have to be equal and match. So sort of a, a notion that 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 just has never come naturally to me. And I would like to say that Anders, what you just said, your explanation, I feel like I incrementally now understand accounting a little bit better. This is a project that Anders and I, that, that Anders has been guiding me through all these years. Um, the, let me say something that, that comes up, you know, that, that comes up very often. So we have these things that we generate. We generate what are called estimates of indicative prices for everything during the annual participatory planning process. And one of the questions that people ask is, well, how can you possibly believe that these are accurate? And, and my answer is, well, first of all, we are under no illusion that they are perfect. That would be silly. Hmm. Um, and I tell people, look, all economists, you know, any economist understands this. Any, under, any economist understands that if you create a model and the model generates prices, we don't expect these to be, you know, absolutely perfectly accurate. And that's why we call them indicative prices. And since the word price resonates so badly, you know, with so many people who've become disillusioned with capitalism, um, I almost, I mean, I've come over the years now to regret the fact that I ever even called them indicative prices. Because what they really are is, our best estimate of the social cost of supplying something, the cost to society of supplying anybody who wants it with something, or our best estimate of the benefit that anybody in society gets from having something. That's what they are. They're our best estimate of social costs and our best estimate, and we know they're not perfect. We're perfectly aware of the fact that there's no way they could be perfect, and so in and if you want to then draw the conclusion, well, that means they are not perfectly accurate. My answer is yes, of course. We're not claiming they are perfectly accurate. On the other hand, the question remains, in situation, in many situations, <coughs> and I'm going to also 
I'm going to also concede that there may be situations where we just shouldn't do this. So in many situations in the economy, I would argue we want to make a decision based on our best estimates of the cost of society of making something and the benefits of society of having something. In many, many cases, that's how we want to make our decisions. There are some cases where we probably don't want to make our decisions based on that methodology. But for tons, tons of decisions that have to be made, I think that it's just, you know, that it's sort of obviously true that that would be the best way to go about it. And then the question becomes, have you designed procedures that are likely to generate estimates of social costs and social benefits there that are as close and as accurate as we can do in the amount of time and energy we're going to put into this. And that's the spirit in which I think we have approached this subject. And that's how I would defend our procedures, that our procedures are designed to do that. No, they're not perfect. We know they're not perfect. And no, and also, are there some situations, and actually one, I, one I've written about recently is in terms of deciding you know, how aggressively to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, do we really want to try and do this on a cost-benefit estimate? Um, I think for a whole host of reasons um, that I would not recommend that a cost-benefit analysis is the right way to decide how aggressively we should try and prevent climate change. So there are important cases where this is not the approach that we should be taken. But in economies, we're mostly dealing with all those situations where this does seem to be the sensible way to go about making decisions for people to do so. Auntie, um, th this kind of speaks to one point with regards to kind of conflating various points on um I guess, I guess reform versus revolution, I guess would might be one way of calling it. That on the one hand, we're talking about um, conventional markers of things like prices, although Robin kind of, um, for good reasons, just explained why the word has got uh, some baggage to it. Um, but also at the same time where um, perhaps folks of a more anarchist persuasion have kind of steered away from this. Um, you, you've mentioned this before. What are your thoughts on the matter regarding um, uh, realism versus utopia, reform versus radicalism? Tell us more. Yeah, there's the interesting thing is, I think that a lot of radicals, so to speak, uh, view it as, you know, all the effort towards a radical new economy is worth it because it will be completely different. So we will, you know, toil away right now. But once we hit the jackpot, we sort of win the lottery, uh, then we'll be in a completely different world. And I think in that worldview, it's sort of annoying to think that we will actually be have to be, you know, filling, dealing with a lot of mundane issues, even in the future. And the example I like to use is that, well, do you want a civilization that has MRI machines? Or do you want, you know, civilization that has uh, diabetes medicine? Well, if you want that sort of civilization, if you want, you know, global society that's capable of, of doing those things, then you will have to deal with, you know, things that, you know, are very similar to filling a tax reform paper or something like that. That's sort of the unfortunate 
truth, I think. Um, and then the question comes, well, you don't want to think about MRI machines or you don't want to think about uh, diabetes medicine and, and so on. Um, and that's a different topic, I think. That's that's more of a, you know, it, 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 I don't think it's to be laughed at or dismissed. I think it's, it's um, you know, human civilization could have developed towards some sort of Buddhist, you know, instead of uh, uh, achieving space rockets or MRI machines, we could be, you know, researching higher levels of consciousness or something like that. I think, you know, it's it's possible. Um, and if if that's what sort of ticks you, then then that's a thing to do. But I think realistically that will mean a humanity that is a lot, lot smaller, that those kind of things can't sustain you know, billions of people. And on the other hand, if you want to build a global society that sustains billions of people, then that already narrows down the things that you sort of can do. Um, and having prices, having you know numbers, uh, are something that actually, you know, you can go way back to ancient civilizations, you know, Egypt and so on, uh, or especially China. Um, and they, that was part of their, you know, thing that they, they had to have those numbers. It sort of an, was an evolution that you need them in order to, exactly like Anders said, to account for everything that's going on that isn't possible to solve just by, you know, talking amongst a couple of people or 10 people or so. Um, and that's, you know, maybe in the future, you know, Star Trek has wonderful visions of future where people have, you know, uh, machines like replicators and, and, you know, stuff that is possible to create out of thin air. And that would, you know, solve a lot of issues, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that that would actually solve a lot of these issues that we deal with participatory economy. You would definitely need, I think, participatory economy in a society like that. Um, but it's a very far off. And I think um, it's interesting because a lot of times participatory economists talk to us something very utopian, very far off. And I think we are pretty far off. You know, it's, a, it's an economy that takes decades or centuries to build. But the thing that people who are saying no numbers, they are talking about something way, way off. My favorite show that I've, you know, uh, praised here before is Babylon 5. And spoiler alert, in its uh, last episode of season four, there's a flashback to million years in the future where humanity has achieved, you know, they can somehow travel as, you know, spiritual beings or something like that. I think the no numbers utopia is like a million years off. And, you know, that's, that's something you think about, but we're not that far off when talking about prices and accounting. I think getting rid of Anders's hobby, which is accounting, will take a million years. And for that long, we're stuck with Anders. <laughs> Let me say it's not a hobby. It's it's a profession. <laughs> it's a burden. But, but I make my living on that. No, yeah, but there's a very, this is, leads to an interesting point that maybe it's just that maybe, I, I guess, revolutionaries should kind of temper their expectations a little bit. I mean, it would be great if we had an absolutely, you know, if we had heaven on earth. But, you know, it, it's like, the revolution will be accounted for and we'll have numbers and we'll have paperwork and we'll have some kind of, you know, some mundane elements to it, but that's okay. It would be better. And at least with the model that those of us on this call and others have advocated for would be better than the kind of 
monstrosities that we have and have dealt with over the last hundred years or so. Um, Robin, Anders, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not nirvana. Um, I mean, and in some ways, what what anti-capitalist revolutions and revolutionaries have always been about, um, you know, is is a spiritual experience. And talking about things as mundane as accounting. I don't even want to talk about accounting and I'm an economist. <laughs> and then talking about the, you know, numbers the way economists do, it it's a big come down. You know, is this is is this what all of the efforts and sacrifices to overthrow capitalism have landed me in? Um you know, I know I, I know from the history of the Cuban Revolution that there were all sorts of revolutionaries in Cuba who proved not to be very well suited to what needed to be done after the revolution was over, hmm. um, which really did entail sort of down to earth dealing with mundane things like numbers and evaluating things. And and they had no patience for it. It wasn't what they signed up for. They were very courageous. They risked their lives. And, and it was sort of interesting. You could watch and see who the leadership in the, you know, M26 and the Cuban Rep and the Cuban Communist Party. There was a huge shift in leadership where people with very different kinds of people were the ones who came to be needed in the new situation. So I think this is another this is another way in which in which socialists have been sort of caught in trap that we need to think very carefully about, you know, on the on the issue, you know, on issues such as numbers, prices, quantifying things, um, et cetera. And there's your thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to <laughs> to 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 tell you something from my from my experience because you know since my turnaround, my political turnaround, I've been involved in um, uh, the syndicalist movement. Quite a bit, uh, and it's it, it is interesting being an accountant in those uh, circumstances because you are extremely popular person because nobody wants to do accounting. <laughs> so so you you get you on the one hand you are extremely popular for that reason, but on the other hand, I mean you know on the, on the other hand many people in that in those circles don't really want to talk they don't really you know want to talk about accounting whatsoever or numbers or anything you know but 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 you get you you, you get really popular so that, i mean i think that's 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 interesting that's kind that's sort of also answered that's also you know that shows that there definitely is uh you know there definitely is a need to do numbers and to to um yeah to work with numbers you know, this is not something. This is not in the future. This is today. But but um, I think organizations like this should be more. They should be more interested in numbers. That's what I would like to say. Okay. Um, uh, Anders Sandstrom is the author of the book. I will plug it one more time: "Anarchist Accounting: Accounting Principles for a Democratic Economy." Uh, available now through Routledge Press. Um, and you have been listening to or watching. 
Pep Talk, the Participatory Economy Podcast, the podcast where we discuss the democratic alternative to capitalism known as a participatory economy. Um, to find out more, uh, you can visit our website at participatoryeconomy.org. There you can find a number of projects, including an online forum where you can discuss uh, matters related to a participatory economy, like the role of numbers. Um, you can also sign up for a regular monthly newsletter to find out on developments involving the project and, and the podcast. From uh, Anders in Stockholm, Auntie in Helsinki, and Robin in Boston, this is Mitchell in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye. Good to be with everybody. Please visit participatoryeconomy.org to find out more and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks, and see you at the next episode.